Well, as you can tell, as we mentioned earlier, the focus of everything we're doing this morning, as it should be really every week, is on the person of Jesus. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of everything taking place in our world and um, in our country, we should be reminded that the answer is Jesus. And not just, not just what's needed in our country, but it's what we need in our lives. And so we want to focus on that this morning. Have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 passage that Pastor Jason read a little bit earlier is our focus again in our message this morning. You know, I was listening to the news on Wednesday, and you most likely have heard about the shooting at the school in Florida. 17, 18 people lost their lives. We look at that, and we can sometimes, I think, wonder, why is all this happening? But as believers, I think we need to understand that the, the answer to that question is a reminder that we live in a world that is still controlled by sin, that there is sin everywhere. And when we see evil displayed and when we see acts of evil, as we saw this past week, it should be a reminder that people need Jesus. But here's the problem, I, I think. I think the problem can be that when people come to us and they say, why is all this happening? You're a Christian. What's the answer to this? And we respond with the answer is Jesus, and then they follow that question up with, well, tell me about this Jesus. That many of us, I am afraid, don't have a lot to say. Many of us know that Jesus is the answer to the problems that we see. Many of us know that Jesus is the answer to this sin that we see demonstrated, that Jesus is the answer to the evil that we see on display so very often in our country and in our world. And we know Jesus is the answer. We know that people need Jesus. But when we try to follow up that initial response with who Jesus is, Many times what we have to say is limited. What we have to add to that is lacking. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this passage of Scripture that has a lot to say about the person of Jesus Christ. And on the back of your bulletin is an outline. And we're going to spend the majority of the message this morning simply walking through this passage and answering the question, who is Jesus? As Christians, we need to be able to answer that question, right? Right? All right. This passage has a lot of imagery, a lot of word pictures with historical significance that we're going to unpack. And what I want to do really is just dive right in. The first thing on your outline is the characteristics of Christ. The characteristics of Christ. I want us to understand who this Christ is. If Christ really is the answer which I believe that He is, if He really is the answer to the world that is filled with problems, to the sin that we see, then we need to understand who this Christ is. We need to understand the characteristics of Christ. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, He has the voice of clarity. He has the voice of clarity. Notice verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Notice this next phrase. I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. In the early ancient Olympics, trumpet blowing was an actual competition. And the trumpet blowing wasn't a competition to see who could play the trumpet best, but who could play it the loudest. And so one at a time, they would get up and they would blow their trumpet as loud as they could, and then they would go sit down, the next person would get up, and the next person would blow their trumpet as loud as they could, and they would go through all, and the person who would win the prize 
was the person who could blow his trumpet the loudest. But here, the idea of this voice like a trumpet is not so much talking about volume. We'll see that in a minute. But it's indicating that this voice, this voice of Christ, is a voice of clarity. It's a voice of clarity. For many years, in fact, the trumpet was used on the battlefield to bring clarity to an army in the midst of chaos. When the, when the battle would be raging at its worst, at its strongest, at its most intense, all of the soldiers would be engaged in the battle, and many times they could not hear verbal commands, but what they could hear was the instruction of the trumpet. And there were different trumpet signals to indicate different action that the army was to take, all showing that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of battle, in the midst of confusion, this trumpet was the voice of clarity. That's what this is saying about Christ, that Christ is the voice of clarity. Understand something. In a world that is characterized by confusion, in a world that is characterized by evil, in a world that is characterized by so many different voices and opinions and ideas, there must be a voice of clarity, and that voice of clarity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the voice of clarity. In the voice of Christ, you find urgency. In the voice of Christ, you find power. It is the voice of Jesus that brings clarity to a world of confusion. His voice is not indecisive. His voice is not timid. The voice of Christ is clear and commanding. One commentator said this, the voice of Christ is clear and commanding if we would only be still long enough to listen to it. And really, that's the question, right? If you have this trumpet that is blaring in the midst of the battle, this trumpet that is blaring in the midst of confusion, in the midst of chaos, the question is, will you pause to hear the voice of clarity? If you turn on the news, you're told how to think. If you turn on talk shows, you're told what to believe. In the midst of all of that, we have to pause and we have to listen to the voice of clarity that sings out in the midst of chaos and in the midst of confusion And we have to listen to the person of Jesus Christ. Every day, every week, every month, there are going to be situations in our country and situations in our world that cause confusion, that cause us to wonder why, that bring questions to our mind. And in the midst of that, we're going to hear all of these ideas about what we should think and what we should do and what we should believe and how we should act and what attitudes we should possess. In the midst of all of that, listen to the voice of of clarity. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. Christ has the voice of clarity. Number two, He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. Notice verse 13 again. Verse 13 said, among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man. Many places throughout the book of Revelation, John is actually referring to or even quoting from the book of Daniel. So when we're trying to understand who is this son of man that he's referring to, I want to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and read verse 13 and 14. Just listen to me as I read, because I think as you hear Daniel's description of the son of man, it'll become very clear to whom he is referring. Notice, listen to what he says. And behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven, 
and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So when John says he saw one as the Son of Man, understand that he is referring again to the person of Christ. He is describing the one with all dominion and all glory. He is describing the one that one day every people, every nation, every language will bow down and serve. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is who John is writing about. This son of man is the one that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he indeed is Lord. It is to this Christ who belongs all glory and all power and all authority. No one else but the son of man. No one else but the Son of God. And there is coming a day, do not miss this, there is coming a day when that Christ will be seated on his throne. And in that moment when that judge is ruling, every knee will bow. No exceptions. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that this is Jesus, the Christ, and he is indeed Lord. This is who John is writing about. This Christ is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. Not only that, thirdly, He is central to the church. He is to be central to the church. I want you to notice verse 13 again. Again, this is where some word pictures are used, and we're going to explain this. But notice what he says. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. We learn down in verse 20, in fact, if you look down in verse 20, that this lampstand is referring to the church. Verse 20 said, the secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels and the seven churches of the seven churches and the seven lampstands or sometimes some translations have candlesticks. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So catch this. Look at verse 13 again. Among the lampstands or among the churches was one like the son of man. Among the lampstands was the person of Christ indicating to us that Christ is to be central to the church. Certainly Christ is the foundation of the church, but it is also the focus of the church. Everything the church does and everything we do should be focused and centered on the person of Jesus Christ. He should be the focus of everything we do. We serve Christ. We worship Christ. We love Christ. We tell others about him. We reach out for him. We honor him. It is all about Christ. He is to be central to the church. If a church is doing something that hinders the view of Christ, and it is something contrary to its purpose because everything a church does is to elevate the person of Christ, to highlight Christ, to communicate Christ, to worship Christ, to serve Christ. It is all about Christ. At least it should be. That is the focus. Amidst the churches, in the middle of the churches, the focus of the churches is the person of Jesus Christ. He is to be central to everything we do. Number four, he is the high priest. He is the high priest. Again, verse 13, more imagery being used. Look at verse 13. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Catch this next next phrase. Dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. The language that is used here specifically is specifically used to refer to the attire worn by a high priest. The golden sash that would wrap around was something that the high priest in the Old Testament wore. And so as John is having this image come to him of this person wearing this long robe with a gold sash, he is looking at this individual, understanding that this is the high priest. 
You say, what does the high priest do? What, what does Christ as our high priest do? What does he accomplish? Well, our high priest aids those who are tempted. Our high priest gives assurance of forgiveness. Our high priest is able to save. Our high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses. But most importantly, don't miss this, most importantly, our, our high priest ushers us into the presence of of God. He is always making intercession for us. He is our high priest who is standing on our behalf. He is our mediator. Picture this. You are standing before the judge of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence and the one who can take everything away with one word. You are standing before the judge of the universe, and your accuser comes up. Your accuser, Satan, comes up to God and accuses you of sin and of evil. And as you listen to that, you know you are guilty. You have no rebuttal. There is nothing you can say to defend yourself because everything Satan says about you, your sinfulness, your depravity, your evil that you have, everything he says is exactly true. And you are looking before the judge of the universe, understanding that you deserve nothing but the wrath of God, understanding that you deserve nothing but eternal separation from God. You are guilty. But before the judge pronounces judgment, your defender stands. And your defender walks in front of you up to the judge. And your defender stands on your behalf and he pleads your case. And the case he, he pleads is not about how good you are. And it's not about what you have done. and not, It's not about what you have accomplished. But the case he pleads is rooted in what he has done. And he says, this person's sins, your sins have been covered because I, Christ, paid the price. And he pleads your case. He is your intercessor. And through his blood, we have access to come boldly before the throne of God. And we bring our petitions before him. And we kneel before him. And we say, thank you. Thank you. Because without Christ, there is no hope. We, we've talked about this on Sunday evening as we've been studying different cults and world religions. If you take Christ out of Christianity, what do you have? Nothing. It all crumbles. Christ is central to our faith. And so we understand that Christ is our high priest. It's what brings us access to God. It's what enables us to have the forgiveness of sins. He enables us to have salvation. He enables us to have eternal life. It's all because of the person of Christ. The next time you are kneeling down to pray and you are confessing your sins, which the Bible instructs us to do, when you've done something wrong and you are confessing your sin to God, you need to pause, first of all, and thank God that you have a high priest who has paid the penalty for your sin that has granted you access to the throne room of God where you can stand boldly and humbly before him and confess your sins. And you know because of the sacrifice of Christ that God looks at you and he says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven, and not because of how good you are, not because of how good you could be, but it is rooted solely in the fact that Christ died in your place. He is your high priest, and you need to pause, and you need to kneel, and you need to say, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the high priest. Thank you for the one who has offered forgiveness. He is our high priest. Number five, we learn that he is pure. He is pure. Look at verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. Down in verse 16, you see 
halfway through the verse, that his face was shining like the sun at midday. This reference to white like wool and white as snow indicates the purity and the holiness of Christ. He is holy. He is pure. This face shining like the sun at noonday, again, is indicating the purity of Christ. But understand that from this nature of God, this nature of purity, and this character of holiness flows His law and His commands. All of the commands of God and all the laws of God and all the expectations of God flow from who He is. And so we ask, why does God expect us to be holy? I mean, we read it in the book of Numbers. We read it in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Be holy, for I am holy, God says. Why does He demand holiness from us? Well, The reason he demands holiness is because he himself is holy. The commands of God always flow from the character of God. Why does he demand righteousness? Because he is righteous. Why does he demand purity? Because he is pure. Everything God expects from us in the Christian life is directly connected to the nature and the character of who God is. He is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. And so as we are striving to grow in Christlikeness, Understand this, if you are serious about growing in Christ-likeness, you will be growing in purity and holiness and righteousness. Because as you are pursuing who Christ is, you are pursuing someone who is holy, who is pure, who is righteous. And as you become more like Christ, you naturally become more holy, more pure, and more righteous. If you look at your life this morning and you honestly assess your life and say, you know what? I'm not growing in purity. I'm not growing in holiness. I'm not growing in righteousness. And the sad reality is this morning, you're not pursuing Christ-likeness. Because if you are pursuing Christ-likeness, you will be growing in the characteristics of Christ, of holiness and purity and righteousness. He is pure. Number six, he is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. Again, go back up and look at verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. Notice this next phrase. And his eyes like a fiery flame. His eyes like a fiery flame. We must understand that the eyes of Christ are searching eyes. They are revealing eyes. Christ looks into every church. Christ looks into every heart and sees the reality. There is nothing that can be hidden from the penetrating gaze of Christ. There is nothing that can be concealed. There is nothing secret that will one day not be made known. God can see your mind. He can see your heart. He sees your thoughts. He sees your attitudes. Things that are hidden from everyone else, things that are concealed from everyone else in the room are not concealed from the person of Christ. He is all-knowing. He sees your thoughts. He sees your imaginations. He sees your attitudes. He sees your motives. He sees all of our hearts. He sees the reality. He sees the hypocrisy that may be in some of our lives. He looks at that. It is not hidden from him. His gaze is a penetrating gaze that looks deep into your heart and deep into your soul and deep into your mind and sees the reality that no one else may see. Understand this morning, Christ sees it all. It is not hidden. We not only have the responsibility to confess those things that are known and those sins that are manifest and those sins that are heard, but we have to understand that we also have to confess those sins that only Christ sees. We have to understand that one day we will give an account, not for what everyone else sees, we will stand before God and give an account for what Christ sees with his penetrating, never-ending gaze. He 
is all-knowing and nothing can be hidden from Christ, ever. It's a little scary, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, it's a little scary. We come in sometimes and we go through just the motions of Christianity and the motions of church and we leave and I think sometimes in the back of our mind we just do this without even thinking about it, but we leave and we think, you know what? I've got everybody fooled. But the one person who matters knows all. The one person who sees all and knows all knows the reality of your heart, the reality of your mind, the reality of your attitude, the reality of your motives and my motives and my heart and my attitude. He is all-knowing. And so this morning, some of us, we may need to fall on our knees and we need to confess, not the sins that everyone else sees, but maybe we need to confess the sins that only He sees. He is all-knowing. Number seven, he has all authority. He has all authority. Look at verse 15. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. In ancient kingdoms, the throne of the king would be placed high enough so that no matter who walked in, they would be below the level of the king's feet. It would be high enough so if someone came and they approached, no matter how tall they were, that the king's feet would be above no matter who came in. It was a position of authority. Christ is depicted as having feet like strong brass or bronze. And it says he has the voice as the sound of many waters. When I read this, I thought about Niagara Falls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls before? All right, a number of you have. If Dane and I went a number of years ago and we took the little tour that allowed us to walk back behind the falls. And you're in the rock and wet and it's damp, but the falls are coming and the water is coming over. I read that there is a 167-foot drop. 20% of all the fresh water in the world passes over those falls. 600,000 gallons per second. 600,000 gallons per second are crashing over those falls. If you've ever been there, you know when you get close, you cannot carry on a conversation. If you do, you're in the other person's ear almost yelling. Why? Because the sound of the waters is deafening. It drowns out all other voices. It drowns out all other noises. The voice of Christ is like the sound of many waters. And what he says is final because he has all authority. You walk into the throne room of God. He is the one who is lifted high, not you. You walk into the throne room of God. When God speaks, it drowns out all other voices and all other opinions. His word is final. Why? Because he is the authority. And it's not just that he has all authority. It's that his authority places everyone underneath him. So, there's, so no matter who is in a position of power in this world, they are underneath the authority of Christ. No matter what opinion some ruler may have, they are underneath the feet and the authority of the person of Christ. And when Christ speaks, his word is final. When Christ speaks, it drowns out everything else. His is the voice of clarity, and when the voice of clarity speaks, it drowns out everything else because he is the final authority. This is a picture of Christ as the strong and powerful judge, which leads us into the next point. He is the judge. He is the judge. Look at verse 16. He had seven stars in his right hand, notice this now, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. The feet of Jesus are coming soon, and he is the one with all authority. He is coming as the judge, and when he comes to judge, he's not going to come swinging a sword. When he comes, all that is needed is the word of his mouth. 
His word spoke the world into existence, and his word will cast judgment. Christ is the judge. I want you to tie a couple of these things together. Christ is all-knowing. So he sees the reality of all of our hearts, even the things that no one else sees. Not only is Christ all-knowing and he sees the reality of our hearts, the reality of our minds, the reality of our attitudes, he is also the judge. He is the judge who looks at the reality of our hearts and he judges. And those hearts that have rejected the person of Christ, he will judge. And those hearts that are just going through the motions, they will be judged. This is who Christ is. And when you look back over these eight truths and you see the reality of Christ, you see that he has the voice of clarity, you see that he is the son of man, that he is to be central to the church, that he is the high priest, that he is pure, that he is all-knowing, that he has all authority, that he is the judge. This is Christ. So why do we, in the times of tragedy, in the times of chaos, in the times of confusion, why do we as believers believe that Christ is the answer? Because of these things. When confusion happens and the world is chaotic, we turn to Christ because he is the voice of clarity. When there are so many different opinions about how we should live and what we should approve, why do we turn to Christ? Because he is the definition of holiness, the definition of purity. When we talk about confessing our sins and what is right and what is wrong, what do we base that on? We base that on the character of the person of Christ. He is all-knowing. He is the judge. He is what our world needs. He is what our country needs. We need Christ. But the question is, how do we respond to this Christ? How do we respond to this Christ? That's really the next thing on your outline, the correct response to Christ. See, here's what I believe. If we know that the answer to all the problems we see in our world is the person of Christ, knowing that is not enough. You and I must respond correctly to who Christ is. You say, what does that response look like? Notice verse 17. When I saw him, who? When, when I saw Christ, when I saw him as it's as just been characterized, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Notice the response. I fell at his feet as a dead man. John, upon seeing a glimpse of Jesus, does not have the response that we might think. He doesn't look up to Jesus and say, hey, how's it going? He doesn't look to Jesus and say, listen, Jesus, you have some explaining to do. I was just exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and I've been tortured, and I've been abused. This wasn't how I saw things going. Jesus, you you have some things to explain to me. He didn't even look to himself and say, wow, he's more glorious than I even thought. He didn't go up to Jesus jumping up and down and giving him high fives. His immediate response was not even to kneel. It was not even to salute. His response was to immediately fall on his face as though dead. It is a response that says, I see who you are. And when I see your holiness, I see my unholiness. I am not worthy to be in your presence. This is the response seen all throughout Scripture. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses responded in Exodus 3.6 by hiding his face because he was afraid to look upon God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of the throne of God. And in this vision, the seraphim are crying, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. Isaiah sees this and he he responds in verse 5 by saying, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. 
In Genesis 17, when God appeared to Abraham and told Abraham to walk before him in righteousness and that he would make a covenant with him, Abraham's response in verse 3 was to fall on his face before God. In Ezekiel, several times, Ezekiel has this exact same response to the visions he has of God. In these visions, he falls on his face before God. In Acts 9, Jesus appears to Saul on the, in a great light on the road to Damascus. And upon seeing the light and hearing the voice of Christ, do you remember how he responded? He fell on his face as the dead. This is the response throughout Scripture. I wonder how often we are guilty of taking the worship of Christ and taking the the singing about Christ and talking about Christ far too casually. When is the last time that you've been presented face to face with the reality of who Christ is and at least in your heart, you fell on your face in your heart before God in a response of humility and a response of submission that says, God, I see who you are, Christ, I see who you are and you are holy and you are blameless and you are spotless and God, when I see you, then I see the reality of me and I am not worthy and we fall on our face at the sight of Christ at the reality of who Christ is? When is the last time your response to the reality of who Christ is, the reality of His holiness, the reality of His purity, the reality of His authority, the reality of the fact that He is all-knowing, when is the last time you've been presented with the reality of Christ and in your heart your response was a response of falling on your face? Any response that does not demonstrate that submission, any response that does not demonstrate that confession, any response that does not demonstrate that humility, I would suggest is perhaps a wrong response. Many of these people in Scripture literally fell on their face before God. And I'm not suggesting we all do that this morning But that should be the attitude of our hearts. That should be the attitude of our heart, that in our heart we see the holiness of Christ and we see our unholiness. And our response is like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. When he sees the holiness of God and the whole earth filled with his glory, his response is, woe is me. When is the last time you started a prayer to God by saying, woe is me? You're holy. I am not. Woe is me. That's the correct response to the person of Christ. But I don't want to end there. I want to give you one more truth that I think is so encouraging, and it's the response of Christ to us. The response of Christ to us. We see this in the rest of verse 17 and 18. Follow along. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Notice this, though. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. Notice this. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The response of Christ is a response of love and compassion and comfort. Christ doesn't look at us and say, you know what? You're right. You stay down there. That's where you belong. He loves us so much that he plays his powerful yet tender and compassionate and loving hand on our shoulder and says, don't be afraid. How is that possible? 
I mean, how is it possible to be kneeling before the king of the universe who spoke everything into existence, who knows all, who sees all sin in our hearts and our attitudes and our minds, who sees all, but who is also the judge, who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous? How do we, knowing our sinfulness, stand before a holy God and follow through with what he says with his hand on our shoulder of don't be afraid? And the answer is in the verse you see on the screen. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here's what he is saying. I conquered sin. I conquered death. I conquered the grave. I conquered hell. You do not have to be afraid, because if your faith and your trust is in me, then I've paid the price. Don't fear. Literally, it says stop fearing. So it's the idea that he looks at him and says, okay, you're, you're, you're afraid right now? Stop being afraid. You don't have to be afraid. So we understand who Christ is, and we respond to the person of Christ by falling on our face as though dead, but Christ, with his love and compassion and authority, puts his hand on our shoulder. His hand may be on your shoulder this morning, and he says, don't be afraid. Yes, I am holy, and yes, I am righteous, and yes, I am all-knowing, and yes, I am the judge, but I'm also the person who's already paid the price for your sin. Do not be afraid. I conquered death, hell, and the grave. And you have hope and you have forgiveness and you have eternal life because of what I have provided. So stop fearing. Stop being afraid. This is our Christ. This is who our Christ is. I've talked with a lot of people through the years, and I think there are a lot of wrong pictures of who Christ, who God is. I think some people look at him as though he's the vending machine in the sky. You give a little, push the button, and he'll give you what you want. He'll give you what you ask for. Some people, I think, look at God, and they view him more as the genie. I got three wishes. I got to use them wisely. And then other people, they view God as in heaven with a baseball bat just waiting for you to mess up. And as soon as you mess up, he's going to hit you over the head to get you back in line. And all these are wrong pictures of Christ. Christ is on his throne. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is all-knowing. He is the Son of God. He has the voice of clarity. He is the judge. But he also has the hand of compassion. Resting on your shoulder, says, stop fearing. So the time's going to come where there will be another tragedy. It's just a matter of time before we see another display of evil. And as Christians, we look at that and we understand, okay, this, this shows us that what our country, what we need is Jesus. But let's not dare try to point other people to a Jesus that we are not responding to ourselves. Let's not dare try to push people to Christ that we don't even understand. Let's not tell people to run to the feet of Christ when we ourselves are refusing to kneel in His presence. Let's not tell people to, to not be afraid because Christ is, Christ is there without actually communicating what Christ has done and who Christ is. And what some of you may need to do this morning is simply come to the person of Christ and first of all say, God, thank you for Christ who offers forgiveness and offers salvation and offers eternal life. But some of you, in seeing the holiness of Christ and the purity of Christ, some of you need to then look in the mirror 
And when we look in the mirror, we see our own unholiness and our own impurity and our own unrighteousness, which causes us in the presence of the perfect, pure one to fall on our face. But then at recognizing the hand of Jesus on our shoulder, we stop being afraid and we trust and we rest in what Christ has done for us. Some of you this morning, your heart needs to kneel to Christ. Will you stand with me this morning? I want to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a song together. Jesus paid it all. It's a familiar song, but it ties everything we've been talking about together so clearly and so closely. And I want you this morning to see Christ for who He is, and then to respond to Him appropriately. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, we thank You. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for who Christ is. And God, this morning, this morning of Upon seeing the reality of Christ. God, there may be some here who need to fall on their face. They need to kneel their hearts before Him this morning. And with Isaiah, say, Woe is me. I have seen the holiness of God. God, I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately to you this morning. We love you. I pray you'd speak to hearts as only you can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.